the sound of the trumpet was heard on Mount Sinai when the law was given. And uh, so that is what we have here. This is known as a shofar. This is a ram's horn. This one is actually uh, acceptable for temple use because it's been adorned with silver and gold. And it came from Israel. It's a present from my mother when I went with her to Israel. But uh, this is what the sound would have sounded like. But just imagine this as a heavenly trumpet rather than just an earthly one. So there you go. That's, that's the shofar that would have sounded at the giving of the law. Now, before I read chapter 20 of the Ten Commandments, I was thinking about putting you all on the spot and asking if anybody here could quote the Ten Commandments. But I'm not going to do that because I don't want to embarrass you if nobody comes forward. But uh, it's something that we should all know. And if you don't know the Ten Commandments, I would ask that you would take the time to just remember the basics. You don't have to remember the entire Ten Commandments, but just remember no murder, no lying, this and that. And uh, it would be good to carry those around in you because there's a point coming in this nation where it very well may be that we don't have those displayed anywhere. And so uh, we need to have them in our heart, even if we don't have them on our walls. So let me read you the Ten Commandments and then we'll go ahead and have Cena read a psalm and we will get into the sermon. Chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image like any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. All right, I'm going to stop there in the middle of chapter 20 because that's the Ten Commandments and that's what I wanted you to hear today. So, uh... We'll go ahead real quickly, read one more psalm. I did this to her last week. I cut her off without having her read the psalm. I almost did it again. Sina, Psalm 43, please. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? O oh, send out your light and your truth. Let, me, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of the God. To God my exceeding joy and the harp I will praise you. O oh God, my God, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. All right, we'll go ahead and get started here. I uh, have been in the habit recently of uh, going through this day in history before we actually get into the sermon. And I've enjoyed it so much, and I hope you have, that I'm going to go ahead and do it again today. Normally I give three points. So many things happened, though, on this day in history that I actually have to go through about five or six of them. I mean, this was a really busy day in history. In 1647, a girl named Oxa Young of Windsor, Connecticut, was executed for being the very first witch. Anyway, there you go. Her name, Oxa, comes from the Bible. It means ankle chain. So it's just kind of a little odd thing there. In 1668, three colonists were expelled from Massachusetts for being Baptists. And I was ordained in a Baptist church, so... uh, I don't think I like that very much. I do have a place I go to every year in Massachusetts, and maybe I'll talk to them about that. Um, Believe it or not, though, in Massachusetts, uh, just came to mind, uh, I went to all 50 states, traveled to all 50 states a uh, couple years ago in 2010, took 117 days, and I preached at every capital in the nation. And uh, believe it or not, Massachusetts, which doesn't believe anything anymore as far as religion for the most part, has in their constitution, and I read it right at the uh, Boston Commons, Um, they have the uh, mandate that if somebody is a Protestant preacher and he wants to start a church, they must pay for it. The government must pay for it, and that is right in their constitution, and it's still there today. I mean, it hasn't been removed. So it's kind of odd that people have just completely forgotten what's actually in their own constitution. Every constitution in the United States, every one of them without fail, mentions God and his sovereignty over the people of the nation. So little interesting there. In 1896, 255 people were killed in St. Louis, Missouri, when a tornado struck. And we have Al Gore out there making doom predictions about uh, global warming and all kinds of lies about that, when in fact, people have been dying by tornadoes since the beginning. And the difference is we have better tracking now. We have more people now, and so more people are obviously in the way of these things. But even back in 1896, people were getting wiped out by tornadoes. And not one of those people that woke up that morning thought, I am going to die in a tornado today. We don't know the day of our death. And so we need to keep that in our hearts. We need to keep that in our minds that if we want to pursue God, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's favor. In 1941, similar lines, the German battleship, the Bismarck, was sunk by British naval and air forces and 2,300 people went off to glory or to perdition. I mean, you got one of two choices if you believe the God of the Bible. So none of those 2,300 people thought today is the day that I'm going to die. And in 1969, in 1969, construction of Disney World began in Orlando, Florida. And so now we have our little tourist destination for all the people that like that kind of thing. Those are what happened this day in history. And, of course, on this day in history was the first Pentecost. But Pentecost goes way, 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 way back before what occurred 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And we're going to talk about that today. And I will tell you in advance, the last time that Rick was here, I said the same thing. And I'm sure he had to suffer through uh, quite a bit of it. Um, I am just going to talk off my head for quite a bit of the time today rather than going only by my notes. And uh, so if you have to get up and leave, I will not be offended. This may go for a little while. 
I normally am about 45 minutes. It may be longer than that. But uh, uh, this is an important day in church history. And so we'll get started into it right now. Leviticus 23 is where we're going to start. And that details the eight feasts of the Lord. The first one that is mentioned is the Sabbath day. That is a weekly feast of the Lord. It goes week by week by week by week. Now I'm going to talk about this more later, but can anybody here tell me what day of the week the Sabbath day is? It's Saturday. Does anybody know why we aren't worshiping on Saturday? What's that? Well, we're going to talk about that. I, you will all be informed as to why we do not observe a Sabbath day. So keep that in mind. There are seven other feasts in Leviticus 23, and they are all annual feasts. The first is known as Pesach, or the Passover. This was fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. It pictures Christ as our Passover lamb who would die to be our redeemer. The Passover is held in conjunction with the second feast, which is known as Hamatzot, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It occurs in the same eight-day period. This pictures the sinlessness of Jesus Christ and the sinless state that we bear in him when we accept him as Lord and Savior. The next is known as Bikarim, or First Fruits, and it pictured the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the day of First Fruits, and he is the first of many who would receive the resurrection of the righteous also fulfilled in Christ. So far we have three feasts, we actually four with the Passover, all are fulfilled in Christ. After that comes Shavuot, or Pentecost, which is also known as the Feast of Weeks. This is the one that we're celebrating today, and it pictures the giving of the Holy Spirit 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it marks the beginning of the church age. It was fulfilled in Christ. We observe these feasts at our own peril. And I'll explain that in a minute. We do not observe these feasts. We commemorate these feasts. If we observe them as a mandatory thing, you'll find out that's not the right thing to do. The first four feasts occurred in the spring of the year. The next three happen in the fall. The first of those is Yom Teruah, or the Day of Trumpets, which is also known as Rosh Hashanah, or the Head of the Year. Many people believe that this is a picture of the rapture, saying that it's going to happen at some future time. I'm sorry, it's not a picture of the rapture. Any one of these could be a picture of the rapture. This is actually, according to the Bible, if you were here during that sermon, it is the day that Jesus Christ was born. It was on Yom Teruah. Ten days later is Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It's the most sacred day of the festival year in Israel. It pictured Christ as our atoning sacrifice when he died for our sin on the cross. He is the substitute for us when we take our sins and we place them on him. Atonement means at one meant. We are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ in his blood. And finally, to close out this festal year comes the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. This was fulfilled in Jesus putting on a tabernacle or a tent of flesh and dwelling among us. If anybody knows John 1.14, if you don't, it's on the side of my truck over there, but it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is fulfilled in his work. All of these feasts are fulfilled in his work. This one has an eternal significance as well, when we will eternally dwell in the presence of God and the Lamb forever. So 
All of these, the reason why I say Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, does not picture the rapture is because any one of these could be a picture of the rapture. We have the Passover. The Passover is when Christ redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And maybe he will come and he will rapture us on the day that he redeems us out of the world, Egypt being a picture of sin in the world. Or possibly the next feast, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Some turn sometime during that seven-day period, he may come and say, you are sinless in me positionally, now I'm making you sinless eternally. And so maybe that's when he's going to come. Or he may come on Bikarim, which is the day of firstfruits, when he rose from the grave. And wouldn't that make a marvelous picture of the rapture, all of us rising on the same day that he rose? Or after that, we have Shavuot, or Pentecost, which is today, the giving of the Holy Spirit, well, at the rapture, the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the world, according to two Thessalonians. When that happens, all the believers are gone, the Holy Spirit is gone, wouldn't that be a perfect day for the rapture to happen? A little parallel. So we may be talking here and disappear, and people will look around and say, wasn't there a church meeting? We don't know. All right? And then, of course, we have the day of trumpets, and it says in 1 Corinthians 15, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, that a trumpet is going to sound at the rapture. So maybe that's a picture of the rapture. We don't know. Or Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement when he atoned finally for our sins. Maybe that'll be fulfilled in the rapture when we are taken up. We don't know. Or the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. Maybe we're going to be raptured on the day when he dwelt among us in flesh and now he is resurrected to an eternal body, an incorruptible body. We'll have the same body in the twinkling of an eye. It says we will change the corruptible, must put on the incorruptible. So we don't know what day the rapture is. I have a feeling it will happen on a feast day though. And so my mother and my wife know very well that on every single feast day, like today, I got my hair standing up all day long waiting for Jesus Christ to return. Now, there are two other feasts that are not mentioned in Leviticus 23. They are, one of them is the beginning of it is given in the Bible, and the other one is noted in the Bible. Can anybody tell me what those two other feasts of the Lord are? The first is in the book of Esther. It's known as Purim. It was initiated at the time of the salvation of the Jewish people from Haman the Agagite, the wicked Haman. And the second is not noted in the Bible. It happened during the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. It is recorded in the book of Maccabees. But in the book of John, it says that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication. That is what we call Hanukkah. It's the Festival of Lights. And if you backdate from his, uh, his uh, conception from his date of birth, which was Rosh Hashanah, guess what? He would have been conceived on 25 December, which is our Christmas, but eight times in the last century, 25 December fell on the same day as Hanukkah. So certainly the light of the world came into the womb of Mary on that day. So you see all of these things fit together into the feasts of the Lord. All of these feasts, though, were a part of the law of Moses. And all, as I said, were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Being a part of the law, they are set aside in Christ, and we are no longer required to observe them. And this is very important. I say this because there are certain denominations which mandate either a Saturday Sabbath, which he noted over here, the Seventh-day Adventists, for example, are called Sabbatarians, or there are other denominations which mandate that all of these feasts be observed, not commemorated. However, doing this causes two things to occur. First, it reinserts the law, which is fulfilled in Christ, and it's obsolete according to the book of Hebrews. It says it three times in the book of Hebrews. It reinserts the law into the church age. And Paul condemns this in the first 
chapter of Galatians. He says that it is anathema if you do that. And second, it imposes an impossible standard on a person because none of these feasts can now be fulfilled literally as is given in the Old Testament. There's no temple standing in Jerusalem where they are required to go to, and there is no means of requiring or of accomplishing the required sacrifices that the law mandated and which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So you have to be very careful to reject any teaching or any theology which attempts to sell us back into bondage and attempts to steal away the prize of eternal life, which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who accomplished these things on our behalf. Everybody knows the verse, I have not come to abolish the law, and they stop right there. They don't finish the verse. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And fulfill it, he did, on the behalf of his people. He fulfilled the law, and we reject that at our own loss. When we come before the throne of God, it is with the understanding that he, Jesus Christ, has accomplished every single thing necessary to reconcile us to God, our Father. If we insert our works, such as mandatory observance of these festivals or the Sabbath day, we are excluding ourselves from his blessings of glory. And that brings us to our text verse for today, which is Colossians 2, 16 and 17. And I would hope that every person here would learn this verse, memorize it, and be able to give it back to people when they are challenged with these type of points. So let no one judge you in food. He's talking about things like pork or in drink. Anybody want a glass of wine? Nothing says you can't do that. Or regarding a festival, the festivals or the feasts of the Lord that we just talked about right here. Don't let anybody challenge you about a festival or a new moon. A new moon was in a monthly required celebration in Israel. The reason why is there's no moon on the new moon. The sky is dark. And so it was a way of keeping people from falling into the idolatry of moon worship. And so they had a new moon festival. And then he says, or Sabbaths, meaning the Sabbath day celebration. Week after week after week, they had these Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, or as the NIV says it, the reality is found in Christ. That's our text verse for today. And it tells us that all of scripture points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is he who accomplished everything necessary to reconcile us to God the Father. And to him be the praise, the glory, the honor, the power, and the majesty forever and ever. And because of this, may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of the day is a lesson in Bible interpretation. The church age began on the day of Pentecost in the year AD 32, which was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at the significance of this occurrence and how it was prefigured in the Old Testament and how it is fulfilled in the New. We'll also look at the significance of it in our own lives. But before we do this, there's something that we need to learn as maturing Christians, and this is the principle of proper Bible interpretation. And there are a million things to learn about Bible interpretation. I don't mean to cover all the bases today. I'm only going to give you three simple rules on Bible interpretation that I hope you will remember. And I bring them up at this church from time to time, and today is a great day to bring them up again. You'll find out why in a few minutes. When you're evaluating a verse, you should constantly ask yourself the first two rules, and you should make sure you carefully apply the third rule. 
The first is, is this prescriptive? Does it prescribe something for me? The second is, is this descriptive? Does this merely describe something to me? And the third is, what is the context of what I'm reading or of what I'm studying? We're going to review. Prescriptive, descriptive, and context, context, context. We cannot take something out of context without producing a pretext. A pretext is a lie. It is the greatest source of error in all of Christianity. Matthew 18, 19 says this, If two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, how many times have you heard people say that to each other and make a proclamation, I proclaim this in Jesus' name and I expect it to be done. I claim this in Jesus' name. That has nothing, nothing to do with what Jesus was speaking about. First, he said it under the law. It was before his crucifixion and therefore it doesn't apply to the church. And secondly, it falls under the category of discipline of believers. It has nothing to do with making a claim in Jesus' name. So I'm guilty of this, and I'm sure many others are as well. Don't ever do it again. We cannot claim something in Jesus' name based on Matthew 18:19. That is a pretext. It's taking a verse out of context. Error also comes from using a passage which describes something as if it prescribed something. This type of error covers most of the bad doctrine that revolves around what happened at Pentecost and how we are to apply it in our own lives. So to help you get this right, I'm going to give you an actual example for you to think about. I read you, before we got started, Exodus chapters 19 and 20, the giving of the law. The question is, are those passages that I read you prescriptive or are they descriptive? Do they prescribe something for Christians today or do they merely describe? First, here's a question for you. Should we expect God to speak audibly to us with thunderings, with lightnings, with thick clouds every day? Is that something we should expect? No. Therefore, that is describing something to us. It is not prescribing anything. It was a certain event which happened at one time in human history for the people of the world through Israel. That was the giving of the law. Next come the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 that I read. Do they prescribe for us? Do they say this is something you must do? Or are they descriptive? I want you to be careful with that one because you have to now remember the context. What is the context? The law was given until the time of Christ. I said it already. Hebrews says three times the law is obsolete in Christ. The law is set aside in Christ. The law is passing away. It says it explicitly. All right. It says it implicitly about 50 million times in the New Testament. The law is over. The Ten Commandments are over. That is why we do not observe a Sabbath day. Because if the law isn't over, then we are all on our destiny to perdition because of the Sabbath day observance. Nobody here observes a Sabbath day. Why do we not murder? Because it is repeated in the New Testament. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, and therefore we are to observe them. That is the way that the law works. The law is set aside in Christ. There's no distinction made between a moral law and a ceremonial law or anything else. The law is set aside in Christ. If it is repeated in the New Testament, it becomes a part of the new covenant. All right? The Sabbath day is not mentioned in the New Testament as being required for believers, and that is why we don't have a Sabbath day mandatory observance. Okay? I want everybody to understand that, and if you want a text verse for that, go to Hebrews 4.3, which says, Now we who believe do enter that rest. 
and he spends about four chapters explaining what the rest of God is and who it applies to. And it applies to anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. We are actively, right now, as Christians, living in God's rest. That is why we don't have to have any day of an observance. And as a matter of fact, Paul says some people esteem one day over another, and some people say every day is the same. Let everybody be satisfied in his own mind. If you want to worship the Lord every single day of the week in church, go. If you want to do it one day of a week, go. If you want to have church in your heart at home, that's fine. Paul asks you to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not to worry about formalities, all right? Today, we are celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is something that happened at one time, at one location, and for one specific reason. It is a non-repeatable event. Yes, the Holy Spirit came down upon the believers in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. And he also came down on the believers in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house. But according to Paul's writings, which are prescriptive, it comes at the moment that we profess faith in Jesus Christ now. It happens internally. It is not an external observance. All right, Paul's writings are prescriptive for the church. The Spirit now baptizes or fills the believer in all of his fullness the moment that he accepts Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, if you want to write that down. We cannot get more of the Spirit. Can't do it. But the Spirit can get more of us. He dwells in us in all of his fullness right now. When people say, they quote the verse from Ephesians that Paul uses it, it says, be, or, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, that is passive. It is not active. It is something that we allow to happen. We cannot go into church and say, come Holy Spirit, and expect it to happen. We get the Holy Spirit to increase in us by reading our Bible, by being obedient to the Lord, by walking down the beach and thanking him for a beautiful sunset, or maybe going and seeing a flower and saying, you know, Lord, you put that right in my path for me to see the beauty of it and to smell it and to thank him for it. Or driving through a green light instead of getting the red light and saying, thank you, Lord, I appreciate that. Or doing what I did a day ago and breaking my, my third finger here and saying, Lord, thank you, because I have learned something from this broken finger here. That is how we are filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a passive thing. The Spirit can get more of us, but we can never get more of the Spirit. He is dwelling in each person who has called on Jesus Christ as Lord in his fullness right now. And I just lost my place. Improperly applying Pentecost, and this may upset somebody, and if it does, the door's right there between those two trees, has, when people improperly apply Pentecost, it has caused them to bark like dogs, to laugh hysterically in churches, to lie down on the ground and kick around like little children. If you don't believe me, turn on Christian TV and you can see it every single night of the week on something called the Great Awakening. They do all of these crazy things and a million others. They act in ways which would embarrass animals. And it has, and I mean this sincerely, brought great discredit upon the glorious name of Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit in each of us. So if you are into theatrical Christianity, and I'm speaking to the people on the video as well, Turn off the video or head out the door right there because to me, it is degrading to the person of Jesus Christ. So please remember this always. Is something prescriptive? Is it descriptive? And context, context, context to the glory of the Lord who called you out into his wonderful kingdom. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. 
In ancient Israel, it was mandated that three times a year, every male was to present himself to the Lord in Jerusalem, and it's surrounded around those seven annual feasts. Each of these pilgrim feasts, these three main feasts, was a time of rejoicing in the glorious presence of the Lord. And they were to be there acknowledging his presence and his gracious hand of abundance upon them. But each of these, as I've already said, prefigured the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who was going to come into the world. Here is what Moses said to them in the book of Deuteronomy. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover with Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits, all combined together, at the Feast of Weeks, which we are observing right now, Shavuot, Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, the one in the fall of the year. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Now, that is an important precept for everybody, even to this day. We should never come before the Lord empty-handed. And that's not talking about putting something in the bucket over there. Someday I'm going to have to actually support my wife. Right now she supports me. But that's not the point of what it's talking about. When you come before the Lord, do not come empty-handed. Come with praise on your lips. Come with confession in your soul. And come to the Lord acknowledging that he is sovereign over you and that you are gracious for what he has given you. And that's not just on a... Uh, three times a year feast. This is all the time when you come before the Lord. Be gracious to him for what he has done in your life. The second of these three feasts that I just read about is Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, which is centered around the instructions which is given in Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 22. I'm going to read them to you and give a little commentary as we go. Verse 15, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day referring to the day Jesus Christ came or was in the tomb. The day after the Sabbath is the day that he came out of the grave. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to tell you that this is where the term Pentecost comes from. Pentecost means 50 days or the 50th. So when we read about Pentecost in the New Testament, it is simply the Greek translation of this Old Testament feast day. Jesus rose on the day after the Sabbath that we just read about. It was a Sunday morning, and from that day, there was a divine counting, which we will read about in Acts chapter 1, and then its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. It led to the fulfillment of this feast day in Leviticus 23. Verse 16 continues, Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave offerings, two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. A new grain offering is to be presented to the Lord. Jesus has already risen as the first fruits of the harvest. And now there will be the beginning of this great harvest, which could only come about by his work. This verse says that the Israelites were to bring two loaves of bread made of fine flour baked with leaven or yeast. Does anybody know what yeast pictures in the Old Testament? Sin. New Testament as well. The whole Bible. Yeast is a picture of sin. This verse then is one of the most significant verses found in the entire Bible to understand the glory of what God has done for us. That verse right there. Never... Never was yeast to be presented to the Lord 
Time and again, the Israelites were instructed to keep yeast away from their offerings. In fact, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, if they were found with yeast in their home, they were to be cut off from their people. They were to be executed because it is a picture of sin being brought into the presence of God. Only one other offering in the entire Bible was to be presented with yeast, and that was the peace or the fellowship offering of Leviticus chapter 7. And this offering, this peace offering of the Old Testament, very closely pictures our communion or our Lord's Supper, which we celebrate to this day, where we dine with the Lord in fellowship. But the question is, why does the Bible mandate that two loaves of bread with yeast are to be offered to the Lord during this feast? The answer is that they picture the people that God has redeemed by the work of Christ and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. One loaf represents the Jew, one loaf represents the Gentile. All who are brought near to God, despite their sin, despite the yeast in the bread or the sin in our life, because of Jesus' work. The Holy Spirit now dwells with man in us, despite the fact that we still have sin in us. Verse 18, and you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall offer one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. These can get tedious. You read the book of Leviticus and these sacrifices go on and on and on and on. Most people read Genesis, they read Exodus and they think, man, I'm gonna read the whole Bible. They get to the Leviticus and they stop and they never read any more Bible. It's a very tedious book for some people. And yet when I was asked in my seminary that I went to, to do a Bible study on one book of the Old Testament, this is the book I picked. And my, I thought my professor was going to have a heart attack. He said, nobody does this. It is the most interesting book. And if you understand the significance of these sacrifices and all of them that I just read, it all points to Jesus Christ. Finish up here. Verse 20, the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits, these sin, these yeast bearing bread, as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that this is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. These verses represent the offerings to God as accomplished by Jesus. He is the burnt offering. Remember I read up here in verse 18, they shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord. His life is being given as a fragrant offering to God on our behalf, as is noted in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says there, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He is the sin offering for mankind. Remember it says right here, then you shall sacrifice one of the kids of the goats as a sin offering. He's the sin offering as is noted in the book of Hebrews. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, meaning himself on the cross of Calvary, sat down at the right hand of God. And Paul says in Romans that he is our peace offering. Remember I read this, first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. Paul says in the book of Romans, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather, gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So these people have an agricultural society that they live in. 
they go out and they reap the harvest and they drop a sheaf of wheat. They are not allowed to pick that sheaf up. They're to let it sit there. They are not allowed to touch that according to the Bible. And all around the edges of their field, they have to leave all of that wheat standing without cutting it. And that's so that people that are hungry walking from Jerusalem to Samaria or whatever can stop and they can eat on the way. Or the poor people can go and gather up the sheaves that have fallen. It's already cut. All they need to do is take it and they just go ahead and uh, work on it and uh, make it into bread for dinner that night. They are told this in the law, not to do these things for these people. If you read the book of Ruth, you'll see this being played out in this person, Ruth. So we have this particular idea of not touching these particular sacrifices. And I believe that those verses that I just read picture a group of people known in the book of Revelation as the 144,000. That's what I believe that is pictured by leaving all of this stuff on the outside. When the rapture occurs, and we talked about this a minute ago, the Holy Spirit is going up with the believers. There will be no Holy Spirit in believers on the face of the earth to testify to the work of Jesus Christ. But in his grace, God will leave 144,000 believing Jewish people sealed with the Holy Spirit to continue his work during the tribulation period, just as the people were instructed to leave those gleanings and those corners of their harvest behind. You see, what's in the Old Testament, every word of it points to something in the New Testament, and it all centers right around the work of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is why we do not observe these feasts anymore. They are fulfilled by him. We are merely participants in this great unfolding drama which is going on concerning his beautiful work. Remember our text verse for today. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And that brings us to our third thought today, which is Pentecost, the fulfillment of Shavuot, the Old Testament feast of the Lord. Jesus said this in John 15, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And so you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, I can't say this enough, even if I say it every single sermon that I ever give as long as I live. The Bible tells us about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ reveals the unseen Father to us. And so the question is, where does that leave the Holy Spirit in our lives? In the verses I just read, Jesus tells us that the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit is to do what? to tell us about Jesus, who is the one that reveals the unseen Father. And how does he do that? He does that through the word which he has breathed out to us by illuminating this word or giving us insight or understanding into it. What did Jesus say? And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Who is he speaking to? And remember, context is king here. He was speaking to the apostles on the night of his crucifixion. What did he say? And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is how we know that the Bible is sealed and complete. The Holy Spirit breathed out the New Testament through those who had known him personally. And that precious Bible that I just set down right there is what was given to the apostles and testifies about Jesus Christ. And when did the Holy Spirit do these things? It was during the apostolic age, which began on the day of Pentecost, and it ended 
the day that John penned the final words of Revelation. And the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's when the apostolic age ended. Now let's read about the wonderful fulfillment of this Old Testament feast of Pentecost in the book of Acts. This is Luke writing to somebody named Theophilus. Theos is God, Phileo is friend, so it's, he's writing to a friend of God. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. He chose the apostles. There's no such thing as an apostle today. If you're in a church that has an apostle, you're in the wrong church. There are no apostles. We appoint elders and deacons according to the Bible. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them 40 days, 40th day was the ascension, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. A couple things there that proves that when you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're given the Holy Spirit, you are baptized at that moment. There is no separate baptism of the Holy Spirit that you have to go through. And secondly, he was speaking to people for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And their next question proves that the Jewish people still have a purpose in God's economy. They are not out. The church did not replace Israel. Here's what it says. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They would never have asked that question if he says the church age is initiated and the Jewish people are out. He was telling them about the kingdom, and now they're expecting it to happen right now. And he says, no, there is something going on, and the Lord will work out the time for the kingdom to come. So he says, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the Bible says that that's actually fulfilled in the apostles because it uses the term, the word has gone out to the ends of the earth from Paul's own hand, just so you know that. And um, then it says here, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And then it goes on to say that this same Jesus who you saw taken up into glory, he's going to come back in the same fashion. He's going to arrive in Jerusalem, and I think it's going to be real soon, so I'm ready for it. We'll go to Acts chapter 2 now. We're going to skip from Acts chapter 1 and just read Acts chapter 2, the fulfillment of this feast day of the Old Testament. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. This would have been the exact same day that the law was received on Mount Sinai as is recorded in Exodus chapter 19. So now you know why I read you the law being given at the time of Moses. If you do the calculation from the day they left the Exodus of Egypt, it took them 45 days until the time that the law was, I'm sorry, uh, it was, yes, 45 days. It was the uh, same day that the Holy Spirit was received on Pentecost. And the, the calculation isn't that difficult. I didn't write it down. But what we have here is a beautiful pattern of the law being given on the day that the Holy Spirit is received 1,500 years later. All right, verse 2. And suddenly there came from came a sound from heaven as of a rush, rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire as one sat upon each of them. Is that prescriptive or is that descriptive? Is that prescribing something for us or is that describing what happened? 
it's describing what happened. We can't expect that to happen to us today. We're not going to see tongues of fire land on our head, despite what people say. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Now, the word tongues here is going to be explained explicitly in about three verses. So pay attention to what tongues are. And the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. No, we're going to wait until the ninth hour of the day for that. I mean, it's obvious what he's saying here. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, when we read these words from Joel, I want you to understand that this was given for the day of Pentecost. And the fulfillment of it is at Pentecost with a later fulfillment at the end of the church age in what is called the tribulation period. As nothing to do with the church age if you take this in context. Everything must be taken in context. And the context will come apparent by the description of the day of the Lord, which is given throughout the Old Testament. This is the Holy Spirit being given. Paul writes elsewhere. Let me explain it this way. Paul says that Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but I preach Christ crucified. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was writing to them saying, this is the message of the gospel. The Jewish people get their signs, the Greeks get their wisdom, but he is preaching Christ crucified, okay? What is happening here at Pentecost is happening at the beginning of the church and will occur again at the end of the church. It doesn't apply to us, all right? You'll get this from the context. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Here comes the day of the Lord, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? Revelation 13, 8, I think it is. I may be wrong on that. Behold, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before God created the first pine cone, Jesus Christ was already destined to go to the cross for our sins. That's what that's saying. God's foreknowledge knew that we would fall and that we would need a redeemer. And so before he created anything, in his mind, Christ had already gone to the cross of Calvary. And if that doesn't humble you, I'm not sure where your priorities lie. But to me, that is an amazing thought that by his own foreknowledge, you have taken lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, 
having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. We've talked about this before. The wages of sin is death. Christ never sinned, and therefore Christ could not stay in the grave. It wasn't possible. We call it a miracle, but it was the most natural occurrence ever in the history of the universe was for Christ to come out of the grave because he never sinned. It was not possible that he should be held by it. Now he quotes a psalm from David. For David said concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Paul's going to make a point about this right now. David is writing this psalm, and he can't be writing about himself. He's going to say he's pertaining to somebody else. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And now he explains it. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and in his tomb to this day. And it's right there. You, they, all they had to do was go over and kick the coffin and hear the bones rattle and say, yeah, that's David. He's really in there. David was not writing about himself. He was writing about the Messiah to come. He goes on and he says, therefore, being a prophet, meaning David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. I said this on the Resurrection Day sermon, which Judy here watched last night. The most attested to event in all of antiquity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 600 people mentioned in the Bible, any one of them could have stepped forward and said, this didn't happen. I was making it up, or they could have read, written a letter refuting what Jesus Christ did. And there is not one shred of evidence to argue against it. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you might as well not believe in any, anything that is recorded from antiquity. Nothing, because it is the most attested to occurrence in all of human history from antiquity. He goes on to say... Um, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we were all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see in here. The Holy Spirit came from Jesus, from the Father, through Jesus, to us. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, he quotes another Psalm and he uses the term Lord, which is Jehovah. And then another word, Lord, which is Adonai. Both are speaking the name of God. They're both speaking about God. The Lord, Jehovah said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Has that happened in the world today? Is it happening? Or is the church making the enemies of the world, Jesus Christ's footstool? No, we're doing a sorry job of it. In fact, wickedness is growing. This is speaking about something coming at the end in the time of tribulation before the millennial reign of Christ. Yes, the Jewish people really do have a purpose in God's economy. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, he's speaking again to the Jews again and again during these passages, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent 
and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Great verse coming up with a pattern that's coming in just a minute. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Important number, and I'll explain it in just a second. And that brings us to our fourth and final thought today, the glory of the Lord. We have a little bit more, just a little bit more to study, and then we're going to be done. But in order to understand the filling of the Holy Spirit in our own lives as Christian believers, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and go over what Paul says there. Start with uh, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? He's writing these people, and they have doubts about him, and he's got doubts about them, and he says, do we need a letter from somebody to prove that we're speaking the truth to you, or do we need a letter from you to prove that we've already spoken to you and you've received the Holy Spirit? Paul says, no, you are our epistle, written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tables of flesh, that is the heart. What's he doing here? Anybody know what he's doing here in these verses? He's comparing the law, the tablets of stone, with the Holy Spirit given in our hearts on our heart of flesh. There's a comparison that he's making. He's going to make it all the way through here. He says, and we have such trust through Christ, speaking of this trust in our heart, toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. He's saying that every word that comes out about Jesus Christ comes from Jesus Christ. He is the one that guards his own integrity and his own word. It is all from Jesus Christ. It is not of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. He goes somewhere else in the New Testament. He says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Because in and of ourselves, we're just like all the other people in the world. We are completely insufficient to do anything right. But Christ is our sufficiency. He is the one that gives us the ability to be acceptable before God. And he goes and says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Go back to that pattern I said just a second ago. Exodus 32, 27 and 28 says this. This is at the giving of the law of Moses. What did they do when Moses was up on the mountain? What did the people of Israel do? Anybody remember? They rejected him and they built a little golden altar, a little golden calf, right? They went and had a big party. And what was the penalty? It says right here, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance through the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of the Lord of Moses and about 3,000 men fell that day. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost, exactly 1,500 days, years to the day later. So you see what Paul is doing. He's making the comparison about the glory of the Holy Spirit over the law of Moses. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death, the law, written engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. If anybody remembers the story of Moses, he went up and he spoke to God face to face, and he came down the mountain, and his face was shining, was reflecting the glory of God so much that they couldn't look at him. And that's only just seeing him as 
a, a, a fading image of God's glory reflecting from his human skin. And that's what he's saying here. The glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Both the glory from his face would pass away and the glory of the law was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be much more glorious? If we have God dwelling inside of us right now, sealed by the Holy Spirit, isn't that infinitely more glorious than a reflection of what was received at Mount Sinai? For if the ministry of his condemnation had glory, the law condemns, for even what was made glorious had no glory in respect because of the glory that excels, the Holy Spirit excelling in the believer. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Reinsert the law, Sabbath day, reinsert these feast days as mandatory observances, and the veil is put back over your face. It is revealed in Christ. When you read the Old Testament from an Old Testament perspective, a veil goes back over your face, and you cannot break through that veil. Only through understanding the work of Jesus Christ is the veil lifted, and that's where comprehension comes from, is from the Holy Spirit illuminating this word which was given during the apostolic age. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We're not under the law, we're not under the punishment, we are under the freedom of Jesus Christ. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed the word comes from the Greek word metamorpho, metamorphosis. We're like caterpillars that are being transformed into the same glory, same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. He says right now we're looking in a mirror at God. He's so glorious that we in our sinful state cannot even comprehend how glorious this Creator is. But we are being transformed so that at the moment the rapture occurs, we are going to have this final transformation and we will see glory like you can't believe. And what's going to happen? It says in Daniel 12, it says, those who are righteous and are obtain the resurrection will shine like the stars forever and ever. We will behold the glory of the Lord and it will be so glorious upon us that we will shine so brightly. If you haven't received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I got to tell you what, you are missing out big time. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. I've got one more set of verses, two verses to read you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For it is the God who commended light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The contents surpass the glory of the container. In this world, we get it just backwards. We say, oh, our container is so great and we idolize Arnold Schwarzeneggers, and we idolize sports heroes, when the contents of the Christian far excel the glory of the jar. And that symbolism goes right back to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah went down to the potter's house. The filthiest, dirtiest man in Israel was the potter. 
He'd make jars and clay uh, cups and pots. And if anything unclean touched it, they weren't allowed to wash it or scrub it. They had to break it because they didn't have ceramic clay back then and they didn't have glazing. And so it would absorb the uncleanness into it. So instead they'd break it. So everything this guy made was just cheapo stuff, even if he did it of great quality. I have an uh, Israeli oil lamp at my house, and it's made in the same manner. And if you put oil in there, you better put a ceramic plate under it, because if not, you're going to have oil all over your table in about 20 minutes when it seeps through. You've got this inglorious jar made by the potter, this filthy person who's down there doing all this dirty work, and the people are mocking at him, and when God is using him as an object lesson for the people of Israel. And Paul uses this example by saying, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God may be of God and not of us. Here we're in this inglorious body, which gets broken very easily. My back hurts. I step on something. It goes through my skin. I get headaches. We all have physical troubles and trials from time to time. He's saying, that's how inglorious we are. It doesn't matter how great we are. We're going to corrupt. We're going to go back into the earth. But the Holy Spirit residing in us is infinitely glorious. I got a poem that I wrote for you, and then we'll be done. The Holy Spirit's work for you. The helper will come and he will testify of me. He is the spirit of truth and with falsehood he will not bother. And you also will bear witness of the things you did see. I shall send the spirit of truth to you from the Father. And sure enough, 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come. From heaven was a sound, a rushing mighty wind did gust, and tongues of fire sat upon each. Quite a sight for some. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And each began to speak in another tongue. The Spirit gave them utterance. None of them did fear it. And from each another language sprung. The multitude was confused and came together to see. And they were all amazed at the Galileans. How could this be? How is it we hear each in the language in which we were born? So some of them laughed and mocked and held them in scorn. But Peter, standing up with all of the eleven, raised his voice and said, Each of you! Listen to me. This is the gift of God sent to us from heaven to fulfill the words of the prophets. Christ came for you and me. It shall come to pass in the last days. Your sons and daughters will speak of my great ways. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit. It is my decision. Yes, my spirit will be poured out as water in streams. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, Vapors of smoke thereof, these things I do bequeath before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, as has for so long been prophesied in my word. And it shall come to pass that whoever on the name of the Lord does call, regardless of status or class, shall be saved once and for all. This Jesus God has raised up from the dead, and he is the breaker, breaking out ahead. And he is exalted to God's right hand, and someday he will return to this land. So repent and be baptized in the glorious name of Jesus for the remission of the sins for which you bear guilt. He has come to save each of us, and for each of us his precious blood was spilt. When you call upon his name with the Holy Spirit, each person he seals, free from condemnation and eternal shame. This is how our loving God with us deals. Hallelujah and amen. And so real quickly, I'd like to say that if nobody, somebody here has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I say this quite often, I give about 4 million points in my sermons, and they're a little bit overwhelming. You can watch them on YouTube, and you still won't understand a lot of it, and that doesn't bother me a bit, as long as you understand that Jesus Christ died for your sins. 
that he gave his life to be a substitute offering for the things that you have done in the body. God is infinite. Einstein proved it. We already knew it, but Einstein proved it when he said that time, space, and matter all happened at exactly the same time. And nothing can create something. And so something had to be there to create it all. And this is the creator God. Whatever you want to call him at this point, he's infinite, and this is finite. And so any sin that we commit in ourselves, and it doesn't matter if it's one lie, it infinitely separates us from an infinite God. The gap is, can never be bridged by us. There's no thing we can do because the sin is in us. We can't sacrifice our son because he inherited our sin as well. And so God, in his rich love and mercy, came down. He united with human flesh in the womb of Mary, fully God and fully man. He is infinite and he is finite. And he gave up his finite body as a sacrifice of atonement because he never sinned. He could make that trans transfer for us, the substitute. And he says, if you will simply put your trust in what my son did on the cross of Calvary, hand your sins over to him, I will wipe out every sin that you have ever committed in your life. That is the glorious work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is why the Holy Spirit could be given and dwell in earthen vessels. Because we are potentially or positionally forgiven in Christ. Even though we have sin in our body, still we are positionally forgiven already. And so that Holy Spirit can dwell in us. And he is the deposit or the guarantee of eternal life for all who call on Jesus Christ. You can never lose your salvation. It can never be taken away from you. You can sure screw up in the process. I do it every day, but I'm forgiven, and you can be too. So if you've never accepted Jesus, please do so now, and then we're going to have communion. If anybody wants to get baptized, I know there's a little bit of water over there. I can take you out and baptize you today. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the chance to preach about Pentecost, which is the fulfillment of this ancient feast that people celebrated year after year after year after year, not understanding the great significance of those two loaves of bread with yeast in them being presented before you, sinful people coming before the throne of God because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ, the glory that he has given, and then the Holy Spirit sealing us and saying, I have forgiven you, and you are mine eternally. You are my son through adoption because of his work. Thank you for that. And I would pray that any, if any person here has never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you will not allow them to sleep well, ever, until they get on their knees and they say, yes, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I accept him and I receive his forgiveness and I know that I am saved forever. I thank you for the opportunity again, Lord, to be here in front of these people. We love you. We praise you. All glory, all power, all majesty belongs to the person Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.